that crowd is often looking at what their competitors are saying and they're looking at what's hot. While if you kind of follow the money um, at the level of, of vendor funding, at the level of actually talking to leadership and figuring out where their technology priorities are and, and where, where AI is being deployed, um, you learn that there's a bunch of smoke and mirrors on anything customer facing. Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. And uh, excited about my guest today. Um, he has a great background, and I think we're going to have a really fun conversation. So welcome to the podcast, uh, Dan Fagella. He is the uh, founder and head of research at Emerge. Um, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here, Ben. And, you know, and as, as we do um, always, uh, you know, start out, uh, you know, just talking a little about your background and, um, you know, particularly in this time and, um, in, uh, you know, time and space with w- what's going on. You know, I love to ask people, you know, how you're uh, how you're weathering the apocalypse here. I, I, I'd have to say, like, the, 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 the highest watermark is that one of my guests um, lives in a castle with a with a bridge over a moat. So I don't know if you can beat that, but um. <laughs> well, I will tell you this, Ben. That's my dream. Um, so when I finally just uh, you know sell it all and move to Austria, uh, I'll I'll do that, and there will be alligators in there at least in the in the summer months. Um, but uh, I'm getting through this thing by getting as many walks in as I can, so I still get some vitamin D. I'm in the Boston area, so. That, some good friends and some good books and, uh, you know, plenty of work to do has pretty much been my survival strategy thus far. You know, when, when I was, uh, when you and I first got connected and started looking into your background, I think you have a, you know, a super interesting background. So I'd, I'd love to hear how you kind of got in the area around AI and why you decided to, to start Emerge. So give us a little background and who you are. What's your story? Happy to do so. Yeah, it's it's certainly certainly a little bit different than hey, I worked at Accenture or hey, I studied computer science <laughs> in undergrad. Um, so uh, I, you know, when I was twenty years old and I, I moved out of the parents' house there, um, uh, all my friends were either delivering pizza or like selling insurance or something super boring. Um, and and at that time, I was competing a lot in Brazilian jiu jitsu, so I was training mixed martial arts fighters and competing. And so when I, when I moved out, I decided, well, I'll, I'll kind of pay my way by um, starting a martial arts gym, never having run a business before, having no idea what the ever-loving heck I was doing. The guy I was working for went out of business, and, he, and I was teaching there for free for about a year because he wasn't making any money. So I took his mats, somehow eked out a, a profit as you know, a, a young fella, and um, got really, really deep into competing and training jujitsu. So by the time I graduated undergrad, I really wanted to learn about skill development. How do humans learn? What's the neuroscience? What are the cognitive models? You know, I wanted to win national tournaments. I wanted to train people to win national tournaments. Um, and I was really fascinated by how we can learn to learn faster. And so University of Pennsylvania has a positive psychology program. So, you know, Ivy League price tag, unfortunately, for a, you know, a poor guy running a martial arts gym, probably not the, not the best uh, debt to hurl on top of my shoulders, but I really wanted to learn from the best. And I, I ended up, you know, for that whole year or so that, that the, the masters took driving back and forth from UPenn while running this martial arts gym and learning all about skill acquisition and human learning. How do humans actually learn? And while I was there, Ben, um, the computer science folks had kind of tapped me on the shoulder 
and said, hey, you know, all this neuro stuff that you're doing around learning, you know, interviewing all these skill acquisition experts and stuff, there, there's actually a lot of corollaries to that in what we're doing with computers. Um, and this is the very early days. This is this 2011. So this is the very early days of ImageNet. This is the very early days of applying NLP to Twitter data when that was like, you know, groundbreakingly cool, right? Oh, New York is a little bit happier than Chicago today. Ooh, you know, like that was really neat back then. Um, and I, I remember sort of getting a whiff of this. And by the time I graduated, sort of coming to the conclusion that these technologies, as they develop, um, will become tremendously impactful to governments, the future of the human condition, and the future of essentially any kind of business. So even though I was still running my martial arts gym, um, I, I kind of decided right, and, right then and there, and still competing, to be honest, I decided right then and there, I'm really going to make it my, my passion and life's purpose to understand this kind of you know, post-human intelligence and how this thing is rolling forth. So I started interviewing folks at, you know, Future of Humanity Institute, Oxford, all these different AI startups, um, eventually grew and sold an, an Inc. 500 um, e-commerce company. So I sold my martial arts gym. Um, I turned all my footage. I have a, a great video online, Ben, called Dan Fagella versus the Giant, where I, I, uh, I break some UFC fighter guy's ankle in, in like 11 seconds. And he weighs like, he, he weighs he weighs twice as much as I do. There's a lot of luck in that fight. Yeah, I think there's a lot of versions of reality where that guy just crushes my head. But uh, <laughs> as it turns out, in, in that case, he didn't. So um, that video became really popular. And so I started building an email list off of that, started selling DVDs about jujitsu. Then I got other instructors who were teaching, you know, bladed weapon defense for law enforcement and all other kinds of self-defense. And it became a pretty big online publishing company. And um got it to a couple million bucks and sold it. And after that, I was able to do AI full time. And that was about three years ago. Wow. Yeah. I, I've heard of a lot of different ways that people get into the subject area of AI. And I, I, I'd, I'd say you have one of the more interesting ones, definitely coming from the martial arts though. You know, when you talk about the skill acquisition, you know, at, at first when I saw that, I was like, okay, you know, I think that's really cool, but I didn't necessarily see the connection. But when you talk about it in the context of skill acquisition, and that's, exactly what they're trying to do with AI. It actually yeah. makes a lot of sense. It, there's, it's so funny, Ben. I, I really should write an article about it, but you know, all of my master's thesis work, I mean, there are direct corollaries to overfitting and underfitting with human beings. Um, there's direct corollaries to all sorts of ways that you can sort of mistrain AI systems that also tie to sort of sport performance or memorization or music performance or other sort of research on, on human skill acquisition. So it's, it's pretty fascinating. And that was the, that was the connected dots for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense. And I've, I've definitely talked to other people on, on this podcast about the uh, musical side since I'm, I, I love music myself and I, I, I can definitely see that where I've gotten, I in particular one time got a, I was trying to learn to banjo and I got bad instruction on that. And I basically had to give it up after a couple of years and then rediscover it later because those skills with a mix, mis acquisition of the skills, I guess as you were saying, it actually became a deterrent to, to actually enjoying the instrument because it was really hard to relearn the it properly, right? Bad, bad data, Ben, bad data. <laughs> um, well, and, and tell me a little bit. So you, so you, um, you had, you had moved from this business that you were able to sell, you got into AI now and you started to merge. So tell me a little bit about why you started to merge and what you've been doing with it. Yeah, so Emerge began some eight years ago as just a podcast, um, which is now the, the AI and business podcast. Um, and I was I was doing that just so I'd have an excuse to interview smart people about how AI is changing you know business and and, and changing uh, considerations for regulation. Um, and then start doing some TED talks on those topics. But yeah, starting about four years ago, Ben, we we you know I decided I wanted to really 
make it into a market research firm. So when we were, I was getting speaking engagements from kind of intergovernmental organizations and, and companies. And really what, what they sort of know, knew us for at this time, it was me and a couple contractors at the time, um, was really having a grounded understanding of the current state of affairs. So what's possible in pharma with AI, let's say, and then within those possibilities, which of those AI applications are working? Within banking, where it, what, what can AI do? What's possible? And then what's working? So this is sort of the reputation we had built. And frankly, you know, in terms of editorial calendar and my own sort of research priorities, that really was where we were focused. So I said, well, if that's, if that's the stuff, then that's where I'd want to double down uh, because it's what makes us valuable for these groups. So I began Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, kind of rebranded to that name a couple of years back and essentially pivoted it into a, a firm where we, we basically, you could think about us being like a boutique forester or gardener, uh, where we're a market research and advisory company, but we have a very narrow focus, which is just the ROI of AI. We don't help people with CRM. We don't help people with blockchain. We don't go in and do the technical integrations. We provide landscape data about where AI is delivering ROI, what competitors are doing, and people use that to essentially pick high ROI projects. So if a bank is going to spend millions on a pilot for a conversational interface, they probably want to know what's working for uh, you know, American, or Bank of America or U.S. Bank or these other big players. And if you've listened to our show, you'll, you'll hear folks like the, head of, the former head of AI at HSBC. We have the head of AI at U.S. Bank who's going to be on the program recently and um, as it turns out, that intel plus a lot of scored and sorted data around what's working is really, really hard to get. But you want to, you want to, you want to have that in your hands before you spend a lot of money. And so we are a, a market research and advisory company. Well, and I and I guess through all of that, you must see some uh, really um, interesting use cases and run into some really interesting applications of, of AI, like in the, in the last eight years, I would think. In a big way, yeah, and a lot of connected dots and trends. It's been fun seeing broad technologies like natural language processing, for example, evolve or computer vision, for example, evolve and see how it's finding its fit into, you know, insurance and into retail and into these other sectors. It's, it's a cool vantage point and it's the one that makes us valuable for the folks who are our customers. So yeah, that's, that's the focus here at Emerge, essentially helping folks with AI strategy by providing kind of data analysis and a bit of advisory to uh, allocate dollars properly and find an ROI. Yeah. And, you know, then, and that makes a lot of sense. And I, I can see how that is, is, uh, you know, really useful. And we, we've, we've definitely had some conversations with people on this podcast, kind of around the data science and AI and ML area. And, and, uh, you mean, you tell me if this kind of rings true with you, but it, it does feel like in the last, we'll call it decade, but even within the last five years, there's been a transition from things that feel more research projecty, you know, seeing a lot more real life applications uh, in, in, you know, brick and mortar businesses, traditional businesses where they're actually able to uh, apply AI in a way that you can actually, you know, explain to someone who doesn't have a PhD. Does that, does that ring true with you? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it does. So there's a lot of things happening at once here in terms of what's making AI more accessible. We did a great series called the AI zeitgeist, which I'm pretty sure is Googleable about sort of how artificial intelligence will become more and more broadly applicable over the next four to five years. Um, and, and, and some of these trends you articulated, I, I think, are, are pretty snug. So people, I think, often think about, well, the technology has to advance. Like, well, NLP's got to get a little better. You know, computer vision's got to get a little bit more capable. Actually, what has to advance is the osmosis of the brains of data science folks and functional business folks. Most functional business folks within, let's say, banking and insurance. So, you know, most, the majority of our customers, right? Very smart people. You know, they know their, their industry better than anybody. I mean, these are some of the you know, we're, we're essentially not working with any companies that don't do, you know, 
four or five billion in revenue. So these are big companies, smart people, leadership, right? Innovation strategy folks. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a conceptual grasp of what problems might AI be a fit for. If you asked where could we apply it, they would just think about the press releases from their competitors and that's sort of where their head would go. The fact of the matter is AI does require a bit of a conceptual grasp of where could it be used. Um, And until we have that, we're going to have a lot of false expectations around what's possible. Same thing on the opposite side of the corridor here. We look at data scientists. There's a, you can you learn a lot when you graduate with a PhD from Carnegie Mellon, but the fact of the matter is you don't you don't know anything about underwriting, um, and you don't know anything about um, how hard it is to change a core process within an established enterprise. And so what we're seeing, and I, I happen to be a big fan of this dynamic. I'd, I'd like to see more disruptive change in the future, but for the for the current present, I'm very very happy to see this trend proliferate, where we're seeing more and more companies that are finding ways to keep most of the complexity of AI, the training of features, the you know even the harmonization of data sometimes, um, keep most of that on their side and essentially be just a pipe that they can plug into the client and have an output come out the other side. So I can give you some examples of this that I've seen that I think are making adoption a little bit easier. So there's a, a firm that, that we just talked to called AI Doc, originally based in Israel. They're expanding to the US. I, I interviewed their founder some two years ago. We just had him back on the horn. They've essentially figured out the workflow for radiologists who are looking for, I forget exactly the diseases they're working. I think lung cancer might've been the example we talked about on the call. And I think that's a lot of their work. So chest x-rays are extremely common. Um, Lung cancer, you know, in in the States is very common around the world is very common, unfortunately. Uh, So they, they found a way where, you know, the, the scans that come in from these x-rays just go through their system are sort of labeled by their system and even to some degree double-checked by their own sort of experts who have an understanding of radiology and of, of ML, and then get piped out as kind of a layer on top of uh, the, the interface that the radiologists themselves look through. So that the doctor will, will look through kind of like a, I don't know if it's like a VR environment, but it, there's a multiple screens up that are displaying these images. And instead of just being the images, and then the doctor tries to find the tumors or the, the corollaries to risk, they might have some red circles or some highlighted areas and maybe a short bit of notes around what seems to be getting called out by the, the trained algorithm based on, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of past instances of this kind of cancer. And so in that case, we're not radically shifting a workflow. Now, we could argue here that we should be radically shifting workflows, that some of these workflows are just not built for AI. And you know what? We could probably be more capable if we did, but the fact of the matter is making shifts that are that monumental is really, really, really tough. I think AI is going to have to prove itself by being a set of pipes and by augmenting and enhancing workflows in an unquestionably beneficial way. And only with enough of those shakeups are we going to see people genuinely reinvent the enterprise. So I'm, you know, I smile at that dynamic. I see that spreading across industries. I'm happy to see it because I think it'll help to proliferate uh, the general benefit of AI in a deeper sense in the coming, let's say, two to three years. Yeah, you, you know, you remind me of a, of a conversation, I think maybe I mentioned this briefly when we had talked before, but when I interviewed a, a data scientist at um, Steelcase, you know, furniture company, and 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 one thing that I I thought was really interesting with his story, kind of relating to what you said, is, you know, he had and has a set of data science skills, and you know, build a team, uh, but they didn't necessarily understand in depth the furniture business, and and where I think where he had found that success was going and find the people that know this inside and out, like they, they live and breathe, you know, office furniture and like, you know, how you set up an office, whatever. 
and and then making those connections. And it, and it did seem that one thing that he said, which which stuck with me, is about this idea of iterative change. It's like you you want to do the 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 revolutionary stuff, but some of it is building that confidence and showing showing gains and starting building a routine and a muscle memory of working together and actually then starting to get then taking the huge depth of business knowledge that these people have that know the business but have no idea what you know data science and AI can do for them and connecting those dots. I mean is that is 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 that kind of get to what 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 you're you're talking about there? There's so much to go into with what you just said, Ben. But yes, I I I I concur on many levels. Some of the reason that AI is being asked to be quote be a quote unquote quick win um, is because executives don't have an understanding of what's required to make these systems work and their their longer term strategic value. And so there there is actually a problem with this leaning towards let's just do something small, let's plug it in. Right? AI is not IT. Is something I like to say all the time. One of my mentors, Charles Martin, says that. And but it is seen as IT by much of the the C suite. And again, these are extremely smart people. It's just not their area of focus. Right? Just like for me. You know, some of the people I'll work with in banking know so much more about compliance, it will just blow my brains. But, uh, you know, AI is just new. And so we're learning, um, you know, the, the goal is to, to learn there. So some of that is, is actually, I think, a little bit of an unhealthy dynamic that education will help to alleviate. Some of it, however, Ben, is necessary. We absolutely do need to see some precedence of things working before we commit to radically altering a process. We want to know some results can be delivered. So there's an irrational and irrational part to that dynamic. Until we see the core capability building. So what were you just talking about with that data scientist? You were talking about um, new ways of working with teams, right? He's bringing in subject matter experts and data scientists together. You're talking about new ways of working with data, figuring out which data sources are important, which of them might be useful for our users or for training algorithms. All of these new skill sets, overhauling data infrastructure and the value of data creating a culture where data is actually valued, being able to, to build cross-functional teams that can work together on projects. Um, and and the, as it turns out, there's no done-for-you cookbook on that. People are kind of learning the hard way. Until then, until those prerequisites, those new skills are seen as a kind of ROI unto themselves, seen as a kind of necessary set of skills that will enable us to leverage AI and leverage data far into the future and give us a, a, an advantage at a culture level. We're always going to be picking little nitpick projects, little fun pilots uh, that genuinely, for the most part, are not going to make make much of an impact on the enterprise. Yeah. Yo, and you know, if there's, if there's one thing I think I've learned in, um, you know, being kind of in the technology industry for 20 years is that, uh, there's always a tendency to try to apply technology to solve all problems when nine times out of 10, it's a culture problem. And so being able to have that recognition, then that allows you to do the, you know, leapfrogging revolutionary things is when you, when you connect the culture dots and get that, you know, get that connection where people can trust each other and, and make that leap. That's when you can do the big things, but that's hard. It's super hard. It's super hard. I mean, you know, if, if you talk to hands-on AI consultants, like they'll tell you straight up that culture is a much bigger issue than, you know, the, the algorithms, the science, even access to the data uh, in terms of actual deployment. We've written a great article called um, Critical Capabilities. So if you go on Google, you type in Critical Capabilities Emerge, E-M-E-R-J, You'll see this article. It's actually an infographic. So if you want to know how we articulate these prerequisites to deployment, these new skill sets that are really going to be a strategic advantage, and I, I really, really hope that that over time, um, as you had pointed out, kind of the culture's got to shift. And I think if we can quantify what are the areas we have to move on and kind of see as an advantage and be able to move towards, I think that helps helps firms to actually be able to do it. 
You know, and, and maybe talking a little bit more um, about some of the specifics of the, the cool use cases you see. And I think when you and I uh, were, were talking, sound like you've, you've been delving pretty deep lately in the financial industry. So what, uh, what kind of use cases and trends are you seeing? I mean, what, what kind of comes to mind? Yeah. So our, our, again, as mentioned, our, our most robust research has been in banking and insurance. And that's just a consequence of sort of who's worked with us most. I think it's also a consequence of who has the, the big budgets to really push these projects forward. Um, and so there's a lot to go into here. I mean, we, we, we analyzed something to the tune of 120 AI startups across insurance and banking and you know, leverage our proprietary scores on things like evidence of ROI, things like ease of deployment, so we could compare them kind of side by side for different kinds of applications, categorize them into what kind of capabilities they enable. So there's, there's a massive map here to go through, but I can give you some kind of high-level trends that I think are really important uh, and useful for folks. One of those is around just how much chatbots are genuinely hype in financial services across the board. So just to back this up with some numbers for you, something to the tune of 40% of press releases and outward-facing communications from global top 100 banks um, is a, about AI projects. And this is, this is over the last, let's say, I want to say just under two years. So it's been 40% about conversational interfaces. Um, while from, from our best research estimate, from talking to enterprise leaders and from looking at the funding of the vendors and speaking to the vendors themselves across the landscape, there's like less than 6% of the actual uh, spend on AI is, is going to conversational interfaces. So this really highlights for us, Ben, a really important dynamic that we found to be even more true in finance than other sectors, but it, it carries to all sectors. And we call this the lens of incentives. The lens of incentives states that companies are going to talk about the AI projects that make them look good to their customers or their shareholders. Um, and they're not going to talk about the projects um, that, that don't make them look good to their customers or their shareholders. So if we're a bank and we see everybody else doing a press release about how cool, how hip they are for their customers about a chat bot, well, we're going to say, we need one of those. And then we're going to talk to the first vendor that makes a bloviated promise. And we're going to you know, pay them a half million bucks to be a guinea pig and have it not work but we're at least going to have a press release and, and we're going to somehow feel almost satisfied by that. So, so there, there's, there's a keeping up with the Joneses factor here that actually hides where the money is going. So compliance, fraud, and cybersecurity are gobbling up uh, by our estimates uh, safely over 50% of all AI dollars flowing into banking right now in terms of, of working with vendor companies, partnering with outside firms. But nobody talks about that because Ben, imagine, I'm, imagine you're a you know, Bank of America customer and you know, they, they send out a cool tweet that says, hey, we're working with Darktrace or we're working with whoever it is, whatever AI cybersec vendor it is, um, to help protect your credit card info from being stolen. Right? Do, do you feel safer or less safe? You probably feel less safe. Or, or let's go, let's, let's use another example, okay? So a Yazdi raised $100 million. They, they, they have at least some traction. So a Yazdi, you know, um, uh, let's say Wells Fargo says, hey, um, we're using a Yazdi to make sure that less terrorists can buy missiles by sending money through our networks. Like, are you, are you happier or are you sort of more concerned? Um, the answer is sort of patently obvious, Ben. Um, it's patently obvious. But what this results in is when we bring in the actual map of what's happening in the market, it's often sort of a real brain rattler for the people in the C-suite. Or We often work with innovation and strategy leaders. They're the ones thinking about finding fit for AI. So that crowd is often looking at what their competitors are saying and they're looking at what's hot. While if you kind of follow the money, 
um, at the level of, of vendor funding, at the level of actually talking to leadership and figuring out where their technology priorities are and, and where, where AI is being deployed, um, you learn that there's a bunch of smoke and mirrors on anything customer facing. So to give you an idea, um, compliance risk, uh, or yeah, compliance fraud and cybersec has something to the tune of 5x more funds raised by companies in those uh, three sort of business functions than uh, customer service, sales, and marketing combined. And so people think it's customer-facing stuff in financial services, but by golly, I'll tell you right now, it's not. And there's a lot of reasons why that's the case and a lot of reasons why the perception is being bent the other way. So you let me know where you want to take this. There's a lot of branches here, Ben, but that's a meta trend that I think we really do need to set straight for the people in banking who, who need to know where the action is today. Yeah, no, and well, and, and that actually rings true with with things I've seen over the years because it's, you know, it, it, I, I guess it would make sense because in some sense, making your customers happy is is always is, is always a good thing and it's going to look good. But the reality is, there's probably a lot more money, you know, lost in in terms of fraud and you know, will spinning uh, when you're doing compliance and, and things like that because that's that that risk management is is where a lot of the the actual uh, well, that's where the actual risk is, is in fraud and compliance, right? I mean, I assume that's why they're spending there. Yeah, I can actually give you the three big reasons from from our uh, almost too many interviews in this space, why we believe that risk is being emphasized. Uh, risk just tends to be the focus, specifically in banking, but we could say financial services in general, but certainly in banking, which is, you know, of, of, the, of the FS world, you know, that more than 50% of our work is there. So, it, risk is a focus. Since 2008, for example, all the regulatory uh, issues and, and compliance considerations just really has people on their heels, and it's it's still a cultural thing. It, there's an antsiness and a natural gravitation towards that because that's the culture, and that's you know what what leadership sort of has in their minds. So that's that's one magnetic force pulling us towards risk. Now, the way that this manifests, Ben, this is a fascinating thing. So we talked to again I, in, in financial services alone, well over 100 companies. Um, and you learn a lot of interesting lessons when you talk to these people one year, you talk to them to the next year, you talk to them the next year, and you get a sense of what they're learning. And what we found out, which is a really interesting discovery, is that a lot of these companies who can't, you know, they're, they're 18 months into a bunch of pilot projects, they still can't really quantify what their result has been for, for another known customer. So they can't say, hey, we saved them X money. We made them X money. We reduced X time, right? And there's a lot of reasons why measurable results are hard, Ben. One is that it's, it's actually hard to get results in life. That's one thing. So a second thing is um, a customer just doesn't want to let you quote anything about their project. That's another thing. A third part is that it's often very hard to measure an attribute. So if, if we help with you know, two or three little junctures within a, a long workflow that involves three or four different people. It might not be the case that we ever were measuring the amount of time that those junctures took. So after the fact, we might be able to say, uh, it feels faster, but nobody can actually measure anything. It's, it's not just failure that makes measurement un- unable to be sort of wrought, but, but, it, but it's, it's, it's certainly one of the factors. But regardless, when a company does not have those bragworthy bullet points, Ben, what they end up doing is leaning on risk. When, when we don't have a measurable benchmark to sell a customer by, what we need is a plausible story that this could reduce risk. Hey, Mr. Buyer, you know, if you could get a 360 view and have a, a better likelihood of pulling up all the docs related to this one customer so that you could remove the stuff that they want to get rid of, or you could, you could find the things that they've already been sold so that you don't do any duplicate stuff that could be sketchy, wouldn't that plausibly reduce your risk a little bit? Or, hey, Mr. Buyer, if you could search 
through your legal docs and find these kinds of risks or, you know, LIBOR regulation has changed. And so you want to find the things that might relate to that. If you could pull up more of those and edit more of those and, and assess them to make sure there's nothing that's going to bite you, um, wouldn't, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be valuable for you? So you need a plausible risk story. So what we're seeing in finance is that plausible risk is a big needle mover for companies that can't just lean on making money, saving money. Let me know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, it, it absolutely does. So, I mean, I, I guess to kind of, you know, uh, tied in a bow here is, is is essentially risk is kind of the safe cultural space in the financial sector because that's what they've, I mean, that's kind of, you know, at the, one of the bedrocks of, of that system. So yeah, that, that, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. So that's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic. And again, is it right? Is it wrong? There's some cases where I, I think leaning towards risk in, in the way that I see financial services firms do is, is the right thing. There's other cases where I really do think they have to, you know, open their, their mind to, to other aspects of, of AI and other potential benefits, but that's just, it's reality. A next, here's the next dynamic then. I don't know why nobody talks about this. Customer-facing AI experiences, the skill set required to deploy and keep up customer-facing AI experiences basically is concentrated in one place. It's called Silicon Valley. So if you have data science skills, good for you. But if you have data science skills that involve interacting with a product that involves satisfying a customer need that you can then measure and you can make sure that it doesn't steer or swerve in ways that start to mess with that customer's experience, you are astronomically more valuable and your skills are astronomically more practical. If you're a bank, nobody in your company has those skills. Now, can you hire a couple of them? Sure. But now they have to fit themselves into a little bit of a more ossified environment. And some of them don't really like that. So that skill set is rare. That's another reason why customer facing is not moving as fast. It's a rare skill set to have in-house at banks. Um, and and it's it's really tough to get those deployments to work. If I have a um, uh, an AI product, then let's just say I help you search for legal documents. How boring is that? Okay. But I help you search for legal documents. And as it turns out, that's a pretty valuable thing in a bank where you have millions and millions and millions of those things. So, um, so I help you search for legal documents. Let's say 40% of the time, when you try to search with this AI tool, it's it just like, it kind of like conks out and doesn't really work. And you have to just go back to your old search methods and you have to look in all the different silos individually. And it's kind of annoying. But, but 60% of the time, it'll generally pull from all the different silos and it'll show you the stuff that's most likely to actually be relevant for you and you can use it. If I work within a bank and I have to use that tool every now and again, I'm very unlikely to quit because 40% of the time it doesn't work because 60% of the time it's helping me save some time. Now, if we translate that same 4060 to answering customer service requests or, or uh, guiding people along the marketing path with some sort of uh, interactive experience in the mobile app that's customized based on their needs, if that's just horrendously wrong, you know, 40% of the time, even 10% of the time, then all of a sudden, um, we're probably, you know, we have a, a good shot at losing market share, losing face, and we have a lot bigger consequences. So the iteration cycles um, and the understanding of product, the understanding of interface, the understanding of how to test and benchmark these things to make sure it's not swerving in some direction that we don't want it to go, those skill sets are so damned rare, it is hard for me to emphasize it enough to you, Ben. Yeah, well, it, what I mean, that, that that's not just an AI, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's literally like the what you're describing is kind of like summarizing the last 15, 20 years and just business and enterprise software in general, right? Because they're applying those, applying the expectations from the consumer space and actually translating that to the, 
enterprise space has been the life and death of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies, software companies for the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, it's, it's been, it's been sort of wild. Uh, and, and in AI, we see, again, we see the same thing, certainly an understanding of product and of user experience, like that's its own skill set. But if you want to now have AI, like literally programmatically altering those experiences for customers, you better be able to have iteration cycles and like, you know, quality control and testing methods that are just so on point. It's ridiculous. And if you're not even used to AI in the first place, your culture is just brand new to AI. Why are you trying to run the, the, the super marathon here? I mean, let's build a couple of those things and let's, let's learn a few hard lessons before we start doing something that can influence that. So that's, that's reason number two. I can go into three. Well, and Dan, let me ask you a question about that. This is, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in your reaction because one of the, I did a series of interviews, um, uh, last year with, you know, some people were talking about, you know, some of the, you know, implications in a negative way of, of AI. And, you know, in particular where, you know, kind of black box machine learning AI algorithms are making decisions on things and people don't understand them. And, and I'm sure you're familiar, but what, what kind of occurred to me as you were saying it too, I would expect that the financial industry might be more uh, have it might well I guess more risk to, to overuse the word but it might have more risk there because I, I I do find that really interesting is you know what's the first example that a lot of the activists in that area go to they go like oh uh, this algorithm is determining whether or not you're going to get a mortgage or whether or not you get life insurance or whether or not you get a loan or you know whatever it is right and 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 it's only recently only literally in the last couple of years are people applying that same level of scrutiny to the Facebooks and the Googles and so on in the world. So I would expect that that's also left some of these financial executives a little burned where they're, they're afraid of going forward. Is that, is that, is that true? Yeah, that is, that is very true. It's a super important point. And again, in the enterprise writ large, everybody's got to be a little bit more careful. It's not a startup move fast and break things. You know, there, there are these big consequences. Lending is one of those areas. Every single time we do a podcast episode with lending firms, and some of these people are, our, our, some of these vendors are our customers. So I'm not, I'm certainly not throwing shade here. But, but they're forced to, you know, if they bring on their CTO, you know, talk over and over about sort of how transparent it is and how, you know, whatever, because, because there's an antsiness around, oh no, are we secretly, you know, proxying for race through some, you know, zip code thing that, that is going to get us in trouble with, uh, with, with regulators. So there are some of those concerns. The fact of the matter is that a lot of, of AI applications within banking uh, or financial services broadly are really not discriminatory or or have like gargantuan ethical considerations. Um, so yeah, I think you are touching on a dynamic that is in the minds of many folks today. I think that th- that that fear starts to stretch into everything. Like, oh no, what if our search and just dis- like document search and discovery? What are the ethical consider? It's like, man, you know, you really got to put a bounding box on like w- what things are legitimate ethical concerns or, or not. And, and you know, we've done, a, I think, a reasonable job of doing that in finance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I interrupted your flow there. So what's your what's your third point? I had talked to you before, Ben, about how companies are beginning to just become a new set of pipes as opposed to kind of overhauling an entire process in a radical and you know horrendous way. And as it turns out, anomaly detection by itself is exceedingly valuable with the data we probably already have on hand, or maybe a slightly cleaner version of the data we we, we already have on hand in areas like fraud, like any anti-money laundering. And like CyberSec, so if if we're talking about wealth management, let me get. I'm going to give you two examples, and I'm going to explain why anomaly detection 
is the closest thing to quote unquote low hanging fruit. Now, this isn't to say that every time we, we work with a bank in Australia or the US, we're always saying, oh, you need to do anomaly detection as your first thing. No, but, but we do like to make sure they understand this dynamic. So I'm not, not making uh, umbrella terms. It really is different per client, but I'm going to give you two examples. One is an example in wealth management. So let's say I'm a, a big bank that has a wealth management wing and I, and I want to build an AI system that's going to recommend content and stock market updates to my wealth management customers and maybe even tips about you know how to invest or whatever and maybe even some kind of a recommendation system to help my wealth management agents or, or uh, you know, representatives uh, kind of remind them when to when to touch their different customers. So, oh, hey, you should call Steve because of, you know, the algorithm says so. You know, you, you, should, you should email Steve, you know, because the algorithm says so. So little suggestions around when to touch base and also content recommendations to that user. And we believe that this is going to give them a better experience, have them invest more with us and have them have a, a better customer lifetime value. Now, that's, a, I'm not going to go on a limb here and say that that's a bad idea to its core. But what I will say is it's extremely hard to measure success with that. So what would we actually need to measure success with that? Are we going to wait two weeks and see if the person opens more of the emails and say it's working? No, 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 no. That would be ridiculous. What we would need to do is we would probably need years, plural, years, in order to see um, are people investing more with us in general? Are they showing less of the churn corollary behaviors than the other control group that, that we're treating the normal way? Ultimately, in terms of customer lifetime value, we might need to wait longer than that in terms of having a control group run concurrently with these folks. Maybe it's exciting in the near term, but maybe it kind of drives them away after a certain amount of time. Um, we, we don't really know, as it turns out. So we'd have to come up with all kinds of proxies for measurement. And at the end of the day, it would be very hard to take a long time, but we need a lot of benchmarking to even know if we're winning. So now let's go to another example. Let's say I see all of my you know, money transfers going for my bank. Let's say I'm Deutsche Bank. Let's say I'm HSBC. Let's say I'm, you know, whoever. And I look at all my money transfers. I see who's sending the money. I see from where. I see how much. I see to whom. I see, you know, how frequently they're sending. I see, you know, let's say it's 50 concrete data points per instance of, of transferring money. Let's say I also have a backlog of millions of money transfers that were absolutely, to the best of our knowledge, not fraudulent, not money laundering, nothing wrong there. And then let's say we also have a backlog of hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of instances that are essentially almost certainly laundering of money, They're bad things. Um, if we have that, then what we can do is we can train an algorithm to do two things. We can match the patterns of past fraud and we can determine um, what might be fraud or money laundering based not just on hard rules, but based on deeper underlying patterns of commonality that we humans may not have identified. So we can hypothetically flag more instances of terrorists buying missiles or cocaine with our bank. Here's another thing we can do. We can find the patterns of normal, the patterns of non-risk, and we can determine variants. We can determine anomalies. We can, you could say, Ben, detect anomalies uh, from that pattern of normal, and we could also flag those. Maybe it doesn't exactly look like risk, but by golly, it doesn't look normal. And we can make sure that those are flagged more reliably. If we can do that, it's actually not rocket science to run a concurrent test there and figure out if we're getting um, less false positives, less for false negatives, and we're detecting more fraud and money laundering. So not only does that correlate to risk, we talked about factor number one, not only does it have nothing to do with the customer, we just talked about wealth management, right? Remember factor number two, but also it's a snug, immediate fit for what ML does, which is detect patterns. Um, so so that's, that's a third reason why we're seeing a lot of shift 
towards risk in terms of where the money's initially going and why sometimes, not always, um, we tend to recommend to our banking clients and, and even insurance clients that some of those risk applications are great places to build our skill set. Yeah. No, that, that actually, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think you explained it really well. So it, for all this stuff you're seeing, I mean, you clearly over the last several years are, are really seeing and getting, you know, your hands in these, these trends that are going on. What are you watching over the, you know, next months and years? Like what, what, um, what do you think you're watching that maybe other people aren't thinking about? Yeah. Well, um, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot in that, in that question, but I think for, for the time being, one of our big focuses is helping clients steer. So, you know, strategy and innovation is generally where we fit in at the enterprise level. And, and those folks are thinking about how strategy is being redrawn with the kind of coronavirus era we're dealing with. But really one of the things I'm, I'm tuning into is where are we going to settle economically and what's that going to mean for the appetite for AI and the appetite for RPA? I'm currently of the belief that in the next maybe 18 months, RPA is going to reap sort of the immediate low-hanging fruit rewards as there's, there tend to be less integration concerns with a lot of RPA products, but a lot of AI companies are going to move towards that new set of pipes model versus the overhaul your data infrastructure. And what's, your, what's RPA? Oh, RPA is robotic process automation. Sorry. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So RPA, I think is going to grab some of the low-hanging fruit, but I think we're going to see more of the AI ecosystem make themselves more accessible. So my, what I'm, tuning into is how are the, how's the vendor ecosystem responding? And less, luckily I do, you know, in a given week, it's not unusual for me to do eight or nine interviews with, with AI vendor firms across the landscape. So we're getting a pretty good pulse there. And these are often people we talk to over years and also get a sense of how enterprises are adopting. How is their appetite looking? So as I keep a pulse on those two factors, I'm going to figure out where are the even better low hanging fruit opportunities going to be for aiding in recovery, aiding in digital transformation, despite the economic hardship. So that's, that's really where my eyeballs are pointed now, where a lot of my interviews are oriented uh, with leadership and, and with, with vendors. So I'm, I'm staying tuned and I think we'll have some more good insights in the months ahead. Oh, no, absolutely. And I think, um, I think what you, you know, the way you, um, the way you explain it and the way you kind of um, come at this subjects, I think really, um, you know, it definitely helps, you know, me wrap my head around it and I'm sure um, other people as well. So I encourage everybody to, Go check out your podcast. Go check out, um, you know, Merge's website. And um, thanks for coming on, Dan. I mean, this has been a fun discussion. I, I find this area fascinating, and uh, and I, I was um, I'm really uh, was honored to have you on the podcast and be able to talk with you. Big time, brother! I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Absolutely, and thanks everybody again for listening. Uh, you know, as always, find us and rate us in your uh, you know favorite podcast um, platform, and, uh, and recommend us to your friends so the more people can uh, listen to the podcast. And thanks everybody for listening. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.